Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland in Public Square. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and proud member. It is my pleasure to introduce the third forum in our four-part series here in Public Square. Our topic today, the future of essential work. I want to ask you to go back in your mind to March 2020, when we all recognized that there are two groups of workers in our economy. There were those who could set up a home office and work remotely, and there were those who we all referred to as, quote, essential workers. The phrase essential workers referred to the millions, millions of low-wage workers whose labor was necessary to keep us safe, healthy, and nourished. These are farm laborers, meat packers, grocery clerks, healthcare workers, food delivery laborers, janitors, postal service employees, and many others. They all risked exposure to COVID-19 every day. And as the pandemic wore on, they often faced hostile work environments as they were put in the position of having to enforce public health mandates. Now that Ohio has more or less reopened, unfilled job postings in many of these sectors have made national news, especially in seasonal tourism, hospitality, and retail. And this is sometimes called a labor shortage, but of course, it's a bit more complicated than that. So today we'll talk about the current state and the future of essential work in our economy. Joining us today, right in the middle over here, is Grace Heffernan. In her day job, she works in workforce development, and as a volunteer, she serves on the steering committee of the Northeast Ohio Workers' Center. Also here to my left, to your right, is Mike Shields. He's a researcher at Policy Matters Ohio and specializes in work and wage policy. And on the far, uh, on the far end of the, of the panel here, Sandra Ellington. She's an executive board member representing Cleveland with the SEIU Local Number 1. That's the Service Employees International Union. So let's get started. Sandra Ellington, I'd like to start with you. What do you see right now as the state of essential work? Very important. Oh, is it yeah. on? No, it's on. It's, it's on. on. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Just lean in. Be close. Work is, it's very important. Um, a lot of people don't want to do the work, but the work is necessary to keep us all safe. People need to understand that every day we risk our lives to make sure you guys are safe going to and coming from where you go. Sandra, I want to ask you to just pull, take the microphone off oh. and keep it close okay. to your close like to your mouth. Okay, I was okay, trying. Good. <laughs> um, what I want you guys to understand that we put our best foot forward. We take pride in our work, and it's an effort to make sure you guys are safe because people were continuing to travel even through the pandemic. People still, the world still had to function. So we had folks that were still coming to work, and there was that fear. Um, the, the fear sometimes the fear came to life. Some people caught COVID. We don't know. I, I caught COVID. I don't know whether I caught it at work or to coming from work, um, coming to or coming from home, but I did catch it. And the fear was that I was going to leave my family behind. When you have workers calling you saying, I have it, Sandra, I'm on oxygen. I think I'm going to die. Tell everybody I love them. It was hard. These are from my members. Um, being an essential worker is a respectable, honorable job that this country needs. This country would not have functioned if the central workers would not have not continued to work. The meat packers, the security guards, the janitorial. If essential people did not continue to work, this country would not continue to move because we had to do the job. It was hard sometimes, and sometimes you would get out of bed and you would sit on the edge and say, okay, I'm gonna do this. But sometimes you said you would be afraid because you didn't know. I think one of the most important things that people need to know that this work has to be done so we can continue to function. 
and that we could, should continue to invest because this won't be the last pandemic. It will happen again. Senator Ellington, b b before we move on to the panel, could you just explain a little bit about what your work is? And I, I'd also like to ask you to, to just tell us what your colleagues at work are seeing and saying and feeling right now in terms of their how they feel valued in this economy. How can I put this? Um, well, first tell everybody what you do for a living. My name is Sandra Ellington. I'm a custodial worker at Hawkins International Airport for the city of Cleveland. I've been doing custodial work for 15 years and I do it with great pride. I am fortunate also to be a part of SEIU who has granted me the opportunity to have many things. My colleagues sometimes feel they were forgotten. We understand and we respect that some people had to work from home, but what about the people that could not work from home? They looked at us, sometimes people felt that they were invisible, like we like went into the woodwork, like we were not there. But every day we were doing a job, we were showing up to do a job that needed to be done. A lot of times people were afraid. They would call me, I don't wanna come to work. And I would say, it's, a, it's your choice. And they say, well, are you gonna be there? Yes, I'm gonna be there, we're gonna be there, we're gonna do this together. A lot of times people felt that they were just simply forgotten. Nobody understood, nobody cared, nobody put any effort, it was like we were trying. But every day, even with those doubts, we continue to come in to do a job that was necessary that had to be done. Thank you very much, Sandra Ellington. Mm. Uh, Grace Heffernan, how do you see the state of essential work today? Sure. Um, hey everyone, Grace Heffernan. I am here on behalf of the Northeast Ohio Worker Center. Um, and we are an organization that is born out of the labor movement. We are very much an extension of the labor movement. Uh, we are part of a network actually of worker centers across the state. There's a worker center in Cincinnati, a worker center in Columbus. And while we launched in 2019, I think many of the frustrations and challenges and fears that Sandra expressed um, that are being felt by frontline and essential workers today have propelled us and um, caused us to gain a lot of momentum in recent months. And so for those of you who aren't familiar with the worker center, uh, worker centers are um, in many ways, uh, in the best possible sense, a union for folks who otherwise are not unionized. Um, and they speak really to this recognition of the fact that not everyone is gonna be as fortunate as Sandra is to be a part of the SEIU union. Um, they may not work in an organized workplace. Um, and maybe it's not the best choice for them personally for whatever reason, um, but that workers still need um, to come together and uh, to demand rights. And so I think that really when we think about frontline and essential workers today, there's no greater illustration of the um, lack of imbalance in power between workers and their employers, worker and the demands of society than we've seen through the COVID pandemic. And that really looks like society, us having the audacity, right, to claim uh, that essential workers and frontline workers are heroes, that they're courageous, that they are the lifeblood of our society, that they kept our grocery stores stocked, that they uh, took care of our sick, that they kept our trains and our buses running on time, that they kept our airports open, and yet we have absolutely not provided for them. We have seen no meaningful or uniform wage increases for frontline and essential workers. 
We have seen no permanent benefits increases for frontline and essential workers. We have seen none of the things that we very much think of and consider when talking about quality jobs as a result um, of the pandemic and the heroicism and the courageous acts that frontline workers and essential workers performed on behalf of society. Um, and so I guess if I was gonna characterize to bring it home, Deanne, I know you're getting ready here, to bring it all home, um, the state of uh, frontline and essential work, it is this recognition that the Calvary is not coming, right? If policymakers, if leaders, if folks with positional power in our communities and resources were going to make significant change for workers, it would have happened during COVID and we just didn't see that. And so I think you're going to see more and more workers, in particular frontline and essential workers coming together to demand rights and demand things that they know are necessary to survive and thrive in the workplace. Grace Heffernan is with the Northeast Ohio Workers Center. Mike Shields at Policy Matters, turning to you now. Um, the, I, I sort of alluded to the this in the intro that the, some refer to this as a labor shortage, but it's a lot more complicated than that. The state of essential work um, is often reported. The narrative is that there's a labor shortage, but I know you see it differently, or you or you have said to me at least that sometimes the economy could use a labor shortage. Sure. Uh, Go ahead. Thanks, Dan. Um, so I'm a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. We work to create a more equitable Ohio economy, a place where everybody can thrive. Uh, and we do that through research and advocacy. Um, so in a word, uh, the, the state of essential workers is essential. Uh, you know, these are folks who we rely on. Uh, this is not news, but it is something that I think has, has become, uh, you know, much more sharply in focus uh, in the context of COVID-19. These are folks who have shown up uh, through the, the worst of the crisis and um, ha have done the jobs that have really carried all of us through uh, this crisis as, as far through as we are uh, right now, at least. Um, you know, these are the folks who uh, cared for, for uh, us if, if we became sick and for our kids so that we could get back to work. Uh, these are the folks who kept the food supply open. Um, you know, these are the folks who did absolutely the, the essential jobs that, that uh, we all relied on. Uh, many of them at great risk to themselves and their families. Now, not every essential worker uh, works on the front lines. You know, some are uh, doing jobs, you know, in the finance industry, for instance. That's that's critically important. Uh, it doesn't necessarily put you out there when, where you're, uh, you know, directly at, at increased risk. But for many, many folks, those are the kinds of jobs that they have faced. Um, and unfortunately, even though I, I think we're starting to recognize just how much we, we really rely on these folks, the, the job quality has not always followed. The wages certainly have not followed. Um, I have a new report out this week. I hope folks will read it at essentialohio.org. Um, I found that uh, essential workers in Ohio, on average, are paid 12.9% less than workers who are, are not classified as, as working in an essential industry. Uh, you know, so this is a, a, an issue that we Which really- Which seems backwards. I mean, I know that's sort of obvious, but I feel like we should <laughs> name that, that like in, in, in rational economic theory, right? If something is essential, you would pay almost anything to make sure that that happens. Right, here's the crux of the thing, Dan. You know, uh, we have had a lot of challenges with job quality for, for many, many years. You know, we, uh, we look at this every year at Labor Day, we, we look at the state of, of working Ohio. Uh, what we have found is that for the last 40 years, uh, wages have increased by about 3.9% uh, 
uh, for the median worker, even less uh, for workers uh, toward the bottom, right? So we have some real challenges with improving job quality. We've not done that, even in the context in which uh, workers in Ohio have become more productive and have uh, generated year over year more wealth in Ohio than ever before in history. Now that got a little bit derailed in 2020, obviously by, by COVID-19, uh, but generally speaking, workers have become more productive than ever before. The wages have not followed. You know, when we look at that, we, we need to stop looking at that from a, you know, the perspective of we look at one individual worker and we say, well, uh, you know, maybe this person needs to improve their skills. Maybe we need to you know, move this person into a different job. No, what we realize now is these are the jobs we depend on. We need to make sure that every job in Ohio is a good job. We need to do that through public policy. So let me just ask the pointy question, though. Is there a labor shortage, or is there a shortage of, um, of will to pay what a job is worth? Or, or is that the wrong way to think about it? Sure. So I'm pretty skepti uh, skeptical that we're really faced with a labor shortage in Ohio. I say that because uh, today we have uh, 290,000 fewer jobs uh, than we had in February of 2020. That's the latest data that came out Friday. Um, you know, if we want to look at job openings, we have to go to the federal level for that. Um, the, the gap between the number of uh, unemployed workers who are actively seeking jobs and the number of jobs that are out there on offer is closing uh, federally, uh, which is really a good sign. Um, but have we moved into uh, a place where we've got a labor shortage? I don't think so. We're still missing quite a few jobs in Ohio. Uh, we have many industries in which uh, the number of active job seekers still exceeds the number of jobs that are out there open. And when we're talking about active job seekers, we're talking about people who are still going out there trying to find a job, even in, in, in the context of you know knowing that we have many fewer jobs in Ohio today than, than we had before. Uh, so I think we've not yet arrived at a place where we have a la labor shortage. You know, if, if our policymakers uh, think that our policy tools are, are not, you know, a precise enough uh, instrument to, to sort of, you know, uh, equalize uh, labor demand and, and supply. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we would rather err on the side of having a labor shortage uh, than having a job shortage. And the reason for that is because uh, despite the fact that, that workers are, in fact, more productive uh, than ever, at least before COVID-19, um, they have not successfully bargained for wage increases that, uh, that would comport with that productivity. Um, that's something that if, if we had a tighter, tighter labor market, we could do better at. Um, you know, I, look, we've seen some businesses who are saying, we, we post jobs, we haven't had the level of interest that we like. Um, you know, that, that maybe feels like a labor shortage. It feels like a labor shortage if labor costs more. I think labor probably should cost a little bit more. Um, so that's, that's why I'll say a labor shortage could benefit us. Grace Heffernan, there's been, um increasing, uh, economists refer to this as sort of way upward wage pressure, right, by, by which we mean that regardless of the federal minimum wage or what Ohio has set the minimum wage to be, that there is pressure in the, in the market right now to pay at least $15 an hour in order to get, you know, in order to get reliable workers. Um, is that, I mean, that seems like a gain to me. Yeah, well, okay, so I want to be Mike's hype woman here for a okay. second. Um, so he said something that I think is really, really important, and it's about this idea of um, is, it a, is it a labor shortage or is it a good job shortage? Um, is it a skills gap or is it an opportunity gap? And um, right now, today, for every one job that you describe that's paying that family-sustaining wage, 
um, that has those benefits that we described, that we know is at, not at risk to automation or going the way of the elevator operator, RIP, elevator operator jobs. <laughs> um, for every one of those jobs, there are 50 workers that need a good job that has those types of benefits and wages. And so while anecdotally employers feeling like we're inching towards that um, labor wage increase, we're just not seeing it in a widespread way. Um, and I'll tell you that while I think folks are well-intentioned in many cases using terms like labor shortage, using things like the skills gap to describe our workforce, they're in many ways dog whistles that perpetuate this notion that if workers worked harder, that if they showed up, that they skilled up, that they would in some way be worthy of jobs that pay a living wage um, and that are commensurate with the dignity of their work. And I think, again, to Mike's point, that there is dignity in all work all work is essential, and in particular, the pandemic has highlighted this. Um, and so to the extent that we are able to acknowledge that folks do not need skilled up out of their roles, we need jobs to be better um, and to recognize that many of the industries that we think of as sort of these entry level or entry points into the workforce, in many cases, they are supporting families that pay bills, that have children, that need to get to work, that have healthcare expenses. And so the sooner we are able to get rid of this narrative that those types of jobs are filled with high schoolers or part-time workers or folks who are on their way to something better, um, I think that's when we can start really moving the needle on the quality of work in our country. Sandra Ellington, I wanna ask you to describe the quality of work that you have done and the quality of jobs that you have held because I know that your current job as an employee of the city of Cleveland is a, is different than the janitorial work and custodial work that you've done here in downtown Cleveland. It's, it's, it's a difference because working for the city under my CBA, I'm entitled to health care. I'm entitled to sick days. I'm entitled to vacation. I'm lucky to have that, and I feel that if each and every job had that opportunity, we wouldn't have those issues. People feel that these, as and we said, people feel that these jobs are entry level. These jobs are um, providing uh, services. You know, these jobs are um, you're, you're putting children through college. You, you, your son is getting married. You know, there are things. My husband is up. He had a heart attack. If it were not for the fact that we had health care. I don't know where I would be. My doctor bill would be astronomical, but I was blessed to be in a situation like that. So um, I'm going to piggyback off what she, which, um, we had said, is that we have got to have jobs that provide these things in order to get people to keep them. Because if you're not giving me anything, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to keep moving on. So you need the health care. You need the 15 an hour. You need the protection. You need all these things in order to keep people in these jobs. I don't care what you're doing. I just want to underscore something, that what, it, what, it, what it feels like the narrative is here, which is that if we, if we, if essential work is in fact undergirding our entire economy, and we anticipate that being the case forever, that the, that the just thing or the thing to do to, to ensure, at minimum, if it, if even if it's in, out of self-interest, to ensure that those jobs are filled and done well is to actually provide the things 
with those jobs that many of us in the professional world just sort of take for granted. Healthcare, the ability to take, to take a sick day, the ability to have a paid vacation, the, uh, the ability to, to not have to work you know, far beyond the 40 hours a week that we agreed to when we, when we took the job. Is that, I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about, Sandra. Yeah, yeah, that is essentially what we're talking about. I mean, people look at our jobs and say, oh, anyone would do that job. Well, no, anyone wouldn't do that job. Oh, no. Anyone no. wouldn't do, because if you've seen the stuff I've seen, you wouldn't do the job. Because you're like, yeah. well, how do you do it? But I do it with pride. Can, can we just see, uh, show of hands if you've ever worked in a restaurant, hospitality, ever like mopped a floor, cleaned a bathroom. Yeah. And you know, like, if you don't, like, like, it'd be really hard to go back to that job right now. Yeah. I mean, and that, I just like, like listening to you talk, I think about like the times that, that I've walked into a bathroom at Hopkins and opened a stall and said, not that one. And, and somebody has to clean that. Yeah, and we, and we do it with such pride, and we do it, and we, you know, put our, you know, put our gloves on and do what we have to do because our job is to protect you guys. My job, our, my job is to make sure you go home to your family safe and don't take anything with you. So I do, we do it with great pride. Sandra, talk. I know that you had an experience working at Hopkins during the Ebola crisis. Oh yes. Could so, you talk about that for a second? Because yes. that is probably the most analogous to the whole last year pandemic, but also about 8,000 times more scary. When the lady, I was, when we got the call that somebody had came through the airport with Ebola, it was like, oh my God. Everybody was in a frantic, like, are you for real? And it was a scary thing because at that moment, I had, I, I talked to you and know, I said, this is gonna happen again. I said, I guarantee, and it's gonna be on a bigger level. Everybody thought I was crazy. I said, this is gonna happen again. We have to be ready at all times. We have to continue to educate the janitorial staff, our security, because this is going to happen again. It's not going to stop. This is not the last, the last time. When Ebola hit, that was the most, that was the greatest fear, because nobody knew. Everybody was like in a, in a tenzi, in a shock. And it was the great, it, it, it hit then that this job is necessary to keep this country safe janitorial custodial however you want to maintenance however you want to say it, it is necessary to keep this country safe so i feel that they need to invest in essential workers you have to as a country you have to take a good look at yourself and say we have held it together we didn't get the option to sit behind a glass counter we didn't get the option to to do zoom we had to be there every day so if ebola and this didn't set it straight then this country needs to take a good look at itself and say, what are we doing? Do we really care? Because we did it. No matter what anybody say, no matter how they say it, we did it. We put our best foot forward, and we said we're going to make sure this city stays safe. Mike Shields, um, you have some recommendations in your report uh, at EssentialOhio.org um, about, specifically about what municipalities can do if, if particularly in a place where the state government or the federal government may not be set, stepping up. And I want to ask you specifically, what can municipalities do? Um, what could the city of Cleveland do to, to support essential workers? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the three main things that we need to support essential workers are safe workplaces, fair pay, and a voice on the job. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different ways to do that. You know, one of the things that unfortunately we saw uh, during the, the worst of COVID-19 is that, um, you know, many policymakers really did not step up uh, to support essential workers. They didn't uh, ensure that they had safe workplaces. You know, we had fewer uh, 
workplace uh, safety inspections, even though we had, uh, you know, uh, the number of complaints surged. Uh, we, we did not mandate uh, hazard pay. Um, we have an opportunity now uh, to make it easier for workers to, to form a union right now before Congress is the PRO Act. Um, you asked me specifically about municipalities, so I want to talk about that. Um, you know, one thing that uh, frontline workers really need is hazard pay. You know, many of the folks who are doing uh, the, these jobs are not paid. Uh, some are paid at, at or near the poverty level. Uh, that that uh, pay does not reflect the value of the work that folks are doing or adequately compensate them for the, the extra risk that they're taking on. Um, the American Rescue Plan Act allows for uh, the state or, in fact, municipalities. Municipalities in Ohio got $5.3 billion uh, through ARPA. Uh, they can pay hazard pay up to $13 an hour and $25,000. Now, many states have passed hazard pay on some level uh, for, for essential workers, either um, really broadly or sometimes for certain industries, um, you know, healthcare workers, for instance. Um, Ohio should be paying hazard pay. Uh, local governments can pay hazard pay to, to uh, frontline workers. Um, there are other things that we could do to improve um, oversight at, at, in workplaces. Um, we could and, and should uh, use some of our ARPA dollars to fund uh, workplace rights education and uh, to give workers an opportunity to access an attorney. This is something that um, worker centers do uh, for workers who have um, been stolen from by, by their employers. You know, wage theft is, is very common, unfortunately, in Ohio. Um, we uh, have estimates from the Economic Policy Institute that some 217,000 Ohioans uh, every year are victims of wage theft from, from uh, minimum wage non-payment alone. So we could hit and should have stepped up enforcement. We should have legal representation for those folks. Wage like theft is essentially when your employer is not paying, is not recognizing the full um, number of hours that you've worked. And they're, they, they, they pretend, oh, your shift was only six hours. And they assume that you're not powerful enough to sue them over it. And, and unfortunately, sometimes rightly assume that. You know, folks, uh, you know, oftentimes do not find recourse. Um, we, we have uh, too few wage and hour inspectors uh, in Ohio. We've only got five of them. Um, but you're right. Wage theft is uh, non-payment of the full minimum wage or not paying for overtime hours worked or um, scheduling uh, workers for a, a break when they actually didn't get a break. Um, you know, there's a whole host of things that employers can do and, and, and often do. Um, we see uh, more than 200,000 cases of this uh, every year just in, in terms of the minimum wage um, not being paid. Um, you know, we need more enforcement. That's something that we could fund through ARPA. We need legal representation for workers and know your rights education. So that's one thing. Um, and also, uh, cities and, and other local governments could require that um, any construction projects that are funded either uh, through the ARPA uh, or through the uh, forthcoming infrastructure plans require a community benefits agreement. That can include things like uh, neutrality. When workers say that they want to form a union, uh, employers say, okay, um, you know, when, and they don't try to uh, intervene, which oftentimes employers will do. So there are a whole host of things that uh, both the state and local governments can do to, to benefit uh, essential workers. Okay, we're going to go to questions from the audience right now. If you, if you have a question, I want to encourage you to line up behind that microphone. If you're joining us online, please tweet your question at the City Club or text it to 330-541-5794. We're enjoying our third forum in the cities in this year's City Club and Public Square series. Today we're talking about the future of essential work. And uh, Mike Shields was the last panelist you heard talk. He's a researcher at Policy Matters Ohio. Grace Heffernan is sitting right next to him. She represents the Northeast Ohio Workers Center. 
And uh, on the end of our panel is Sandra, Sandra Ellington. She's an executive board member representing Cleveland with the Service Employees International Union, local number one. As I said, if you have a question, please line up or text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club and we will work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Yes, I mentioned this to you before uh, the program started, but just in a nutshell, I'd like to hear from each of you, what do you think the impact of constructive, comprehensive immigration reform would have on this situation? Who wants to take that first, Grace? Sure. Grace Heffernan, go yeah, ahead. I would love to. Um, so I think something that's really interesting about worker issues is that worker issues are immigration issues. Worker issues are transit issues. Worker issues are criminal justice reform issues. Worker issues are intersectional. We are all workers. Um, and immigrants in our country in particular are um, a special set of workers um, who are vital, who are part of the lifeblood that keeps our economy running. Um, and as such, they um, absolutely need to be considered as um, valuable investments into our economy. And so we need policy that supports them and supports their ability to thrive and survive, not just in the workplace, but here um, in our country as well. And I actually, I think Mike might even have a few more statistics about that. Mike Shields, I, I'm struck as we think about the relationship of, of immigration reform to uh, to the state of essential work, and particularly in the in the trades, in construction trades, landscaping, farm work, um, there are economic forces that are far more powerful than policy. By which I mean that, regardless of what the law says, there are people who come and work and do the jobs that that other people won't do, and th that work is often essential work. Um, so, so to to the to the audience member's question, what would like reform that actually address those realities, what would that look like and what would that mean? So, you know, I, I don't think that this is more powerful than policy. You know, uh, one thing that I did find in my report is that uh, immigrant workers are more likely to, to be essential workers uh, than, than folks who are non-immigrants. Um, also just... When you talk about immigrants, are you talking about documented immigrants or, or undocumented immigrants? So it's really hard to parse data on undocumented okay. immigrants. Um, I am talking about immigrants, but we, we certainly do know that um, undocumented immigrants make up a, a large share of uh, the workers in certain industries, particularly we're talking about um, agricultural industries that we've really depended on uh, through, throughout, the con uh, throughout this crisis. Um, so uh, immigrant workers are, are more likely to be essential workers. These are folks who we depend on. Um, but you know, I think one of the core challenges with our immigration policy is that it leaves workers in this state of limbo. You know, it, it leaves people in a state of limbo wherein uh, their employers can exploit them. Uh, you know, we, we get uh, workplaces that have a large share of, of workers who are undocumented and uh, will have um, an, an ICE raid. And then uh, workers are apprehended, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're jailed, they're separated from their families. We, we've seen two of these um, in, in Ohio, major, major raids, and it was a few years back, I want to say maybe 2018. Um, but, you know, oftentimes employers are not held accountable, but workers become very vulnerable. And what that means is that workers are subject to this sort of um, 
you know, potential threat from their employers. Um, if they file workplace safety complaints, they can face retaliation. If they attempt to form a union, they can face retaliation. So I think, you know, the, one, of the, one of the vital things that we need to do in order to make sure that workers can advocate for themselves, because we've got a real bargaining power breakdown. We talked already about how workers are more productive. They, but what workers do not have is the bargaining power. Um, giving folks a path to citizenship would help that uh, tremendously. There's a, a narrative that immigration uh, would um, would reduce, would lower wages, right? Like increased immigration would lower wages because there'd be more competition for even essential work, or that somehow immigrants are quote stealing the jobs of native-born Americans. Um, what do you? What does the data actually say about that narrative? Well, the the fact of the matter is that. Uh, Immigrant workers are a, a critical part of the essential workforce that we have. Uh, you know, these are folks whose work we rely on. These are folks who are here. Many of them have been for many years in the United States. Many of them live with uh, U.S. citizens. Many of them have, have children who are U.S. citizens. Uh, you know, these Ohio uh, immigrant workers and Ohio undocumented workers are Ohio workers. They are here already. They've been here for a long time. We depend on them. It is time to start extending to, to them the, the dignity and the workforce protections that they need. And they are, by and large, paying taxes as well. Our next question. Hello. Um, my question is, um, as an employer, so I'm a small business owner, and I try to implement um, you know, the things that you guys are talking about. But sometimes it's difficult to know where to get the resources, what things you can provide. Um, and as a small business owner, or I think even as a medium-sized business owner, unless you have a full HR department, it's sometimes difficult to find these answers or to have dialogues with your um, employees on what they need, because sometimes they're uncomfortable to ask for it as well. So just from an employer perspective, what would be some things that we could be implementing that could help um, our employees? Grace Heffernan? Sure. Um, so that's my sister actually coming with the hardball questions, just in case anyone wants to know how the Heffernans roll. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's this shift we have to do that is moving away from individual workers and individual firms and thinking about the systemic changes that we want to see. Um, there... Mike talked about policy and the power of policy. So it is not an accident. The system is not broken in such a way that women workers, that black workers, that Latinx workers, that LGBTQ plus workers are continually finding themselves marginalized. Um, it's in fact distinct policy choices that do that. Um, and I'll give you just one quick example, and, and I promise it's gonna come full circle on my sister's question. Um, in 1935, we passed the National Labor Relations Act. Um, it was this broad sweeping piece of legislation that provided workers with the ability to organize, they had protections they had never had in the workplace before, and generally it was a really good thing. It was a boon for workers, and I can tell you that in the height of Cleveland's manufacturing sector, um, it, a lot of those things came from uh, the, that labor law. Um, However, there was, there was two groups that were left out of that law. 
there were um, agricultural workers and there were domestic workers. So let's think about who are agricultural workers and who are domestic workers in 1935. They are black workers and they are women workers and a lot of times they're both. And so then we think about today, we think about we know women are making something like 77 cents on the dollar of their male counterparts and that's white women. So if you're looking at black women or Latinx women, that number only gets worse. Um, if you think about wealth inequality between white families and black families um, and what that means for workers, um, that all stems from a policy decision that was made 80 years ago. And so while I want there to be a solution for my sister that is an online resource or a catalog or someone that can, can provide some simple solutions, we are up against an American legacy of oppression, oppression of workers. It is policy that keeps workers disenfranchised. And so it is difficult for me to answer that question simply when there are all of these other factors that individual firms and workers are up against. So that's not really an answer, though, Grace. Okay. <laughs> Listen, my sister's going to give me that later, okay? <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you, Sandra, what would you suggest to small business owners, even just if it's, if it's just how they deal with their janitorial needs or their custodial needs? Well, from a janitor's point of view, I think one of the most, in, in, most important things is listening to the worker and paying attention to the need. Because as you can see, um, during this pandemic, we were needed. And we can't undermine that any kind of a way. So I think one of the most important things is listening. And if they want to form a union, let them form a union. That might even be better for you so you can stay within policy. So you can say, oh, I can do this and I can't do that. And I think that's a lot of the, the problem. Because when people don't have unions to give them guidelines, they just like, well, I can just do this. And then you're out of the guideline. Then there's another situation. But I think listening and, and, allowing, your and, and allowing workers to form unions, I mean, it's, it's a choice. You know what I'm saying? You don't ask me what church I belong to or how much I give, so why should it even make a difference what union I belong to? It strikes me too that there's a that with a need with a need like that that's been articulated, there's an opportunity for either the worker center or even you know a, a branch of the chamber of commerce to provide that kind of guidance to you know sort of like a how-to, like so you want to be a progressive employer, here's the pathway. Let's get another question. A reminder, if you, have a, if you want to text your question to 330-541-5794, you can, or you can tweet your question at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. Do we have our next question? Hi there. Um, I'm not related to anyone on the panel, so this is just a, a general question. Um, what are your thoughts on a, a nationwide general strike? Uh, do you think that would be effective, or what kind of consequences do you think it would have? Uh, as far as moving forward, moving, pushing this movement forward. A nationwide general wages. strike. Yep. Thank you for that provocative question. Sandra Ellington. If we had a nationwide general strike, the country, would, it would stand still and people would pay attention. I mean, I've, I've heard of countries going on strike where they just shut down everything. I think it would bring such attention to this country and hold elected officials to the fire it would be, you would see a whole new change. I mean, that's a, that's a hot question. If, if we did, it would be a change. It would, it would, it, people would stand and take notice because nothing could move 
if the railway ain't moving, if the people ain't clean, cleaning, if they not flying planes, if they not stocking groceries, this country would stand still, literally. And it basically stood still during the pandemic and it was just that push. But if that was to happen, oh yeah, elected officials would get a, a clear understanding of what the workers really want. And I think we would get everything we wanted. Mike Shields or, or Grace Heffernan, um, I mean, it sounds like a very French proposal. Um, and But I wonder, like, when you have seen the impact of these sorts of things on, econ on other nations' economies, what has that impact been? I got to stay in Ohio, or at least America, uh, for that question. But, um, y you know, sh short of having a general strike, um, I, I can say, um, Simply having representation from a union would make a tremendous difference um, in working people's lives. Um, I, I found in the report that I put out this week that um, essential workers are generally paid 23% uh, more on average if they're represented by a union. Um, also, uh, folks in, in other jobs not classified as essential are, are paid 20% more. Um, so, you know, simply having the representation, I think one of the uh, the, the real challenges that we're facing right now is that workers do not have the bargaining power to effectively uh, bargain for the, the wages that really would represent the value of the work that they do. So, um, I, you know, without speculating on, on uh, you know, something like a general strike per se, um, simply having representation, having collective bargaining, having the opportunity uh, to be represented um, by a union is, is one of the most important things that we could do uh, to improve the the, the working and living conditions of, of essential workers and others. Okay, next question. Awesome. We've got a text that question. It says, can you talk about a distinctly American practice of tipping in the hospitality industry? Is it time to move away from tipping and to standard wages for our restaurant workers? Grace yes. Heffernan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'll start, but Mike actually literally wrote the report on this, so I'll, I will, so here's my perspective. I made my living um, from ages 16 to 28 as a server. Um, it was a job that was with me full-time, and it was a job that once I got into the nonprofit sector and still needed another job, um, was able to accommodate me in those ways. So it is truly all love for my restaurant workers, um, but, Tipping has its roots in slavery. It is absolutely, absolutely born out of our nation's legacy of racism and discrimination. And if you have been able to make a living on your tips, a good living, which I know is possible for restaurant workers and bartenders, then God love you. That is wonderful. But by and large, when we're talking about uniform practices that can make a difference in workers' lives, Tipping's got to go. Tipping's got to go. So I'm going to give let Mike give some more detail on that. Thanks, and Mike. If you could just remind people, I mean, sh the the questioner said this is a distinctly American practice, and I think Americans don't often realize that. Yeah, well, it, it's distinctly American that the tip comprises part of the wage. So you know, f folks do tip in other countries, but uh, you know, we other countries don't allow employers to just take part of that tip as part of the wage. And that's, that I think is the, the, the crux of the problem. Um, Grace is right, you know, this, this is a, a practice that originates in, in uh, uh, post-Civil War reconstruction. Um, and it, it's a practice that is uh, largely responsible for the fact that uh, restaurant waiters and, and waitresses are paid among the lowest uh, in Ohio, and, and they're paid um, at the median less than the poverty level, uh, around $9.60 an hour. Um, 
I reported on uh, the, the minimum wage just a few months back. Um, if we were to pass a $15 minimum wage in Ohio, uh, including everybody, including tipped workers, uh, that policy would benefit some 1.6 million Ohio workers. Uh, the typical worker would make uh, $3,900 more than they do right now. Um, and eliminating the tip credit alone would generate some $1.2 billion in new uh, wages and new economic activity every single year for the state of Ohio. Uh, this is a, a practice that, that we really need to leave behind us. Okay. No, okay. <laughs> Next question. Hi, my name is Michael Dover. I'm a city club member. Great to be here. Hello, Michael. Great to see you. Good to see you. And you didn't put me up to this question. Uh, my question is going to be, are social workers and human service workers essential workers? And I would just want to point out that we often don't think of that, but if you add up all the small agencies and larger agencies, there's more social workers and human service workers overall than a couple of the different anchor institutions in our region put together. Um, so, and also, there's a new book, The End of Social Work by Steve Burkhardt of Hunter College, which he calls for unionization of social workers. Um, what do you think about social workers and human service workers as essential workers, and how do we need to involve them in the debate about more support for essential workers? Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Who wants to take that? Grace Heffernan, if they don't have a union, they'd be coming to the Workers' Center, so. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so I think that is an incredible question. I mean, so... When I am not volunteering with the Worker Center, I um, spent until very recently, the first 10 years of my career in the nonprofit sector. Um, and so I know that social service workers and human service workers are very much essential workers. Um, they are often preparing workers um, to go on and get jobs that pay better and have better benefits um, and have more um, of the job quality characteristics that we think of in a good job um, than they themselves get as trained social workers, um, as trained career coaches, as trained um, uh, health and human service staff. And so uh, there is absolutely an opportunity for nonprofit and social service workers to organize collectively. And, and I think there's this perception that because you're doing work for the greater good that you in some way are not deserving then of your fair share. And um, while I would love, love, love to see workers organize, I would actually love for philanthropy and government to lead on that. Um, and why ask workers to put themselves out there and be vulnerable um, when there's really these these other <laughs> players that have so much more resources and positional power in our community to make a difference. Excellent. Any questions on Twitter? Anything? We have a, you mentioned Grace before earlier that um, that the the state of essential work and and the labor and, and labor writ large is intersectional. Um, one of the places it intersects is uh, the mayor's race and and local politics. I'd like to ask each of you kind of what question would you put to the mayoral candidates right now regarding the future of essential work? We're sitting here in downtown Cleveland that was largely you know, shut down last year and, and is really you know, kept alive by essential workers. So, um, and uh, Sandra, I'd, I'd like to start with you. However, I understand as a city employee, you might feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't answer this question, but, but go ahead. I live in a city and 
I'm an avid voter. I vote for everything. So. Well, I hope you only like check one box. I check one box. Okay. I yeah. check one box all the time. <laughs> um, one of the questions I would I, I would propose is like the future of this city and bringing it whole, and not having two separate Clevelands. We should be one Cleveland. So, if you're going to be mayor of this city, you have to take a look at making the city whole, not having two separate cities. If you're going to bring in business, make sure you're including everybody. You can't have it, you can't gentrify one part and forget about the other part. And I, essentially, that's what a lot, of, a lot of people are talking about. We want to participate. Everybody wants to participate in the city. So anybody who's looking to run the city has to look at the everyday working man who goes out and have not don't get an opportunity to sit home and, and, and do work. They have to go out, catch the bus. They have to look at all of that when they want to run this city. And they have to take a good look at their central worker and say, this worker, hazard pay is going to come up. It's a fact. It is what it is. My members are screaming it. We want hazard pay. And that's not to be, and that's not to say. That's not putting a value on anything. It's just said, we've been here. Acknowledge us. We're not invisible. We're not the trash that we take out. We're actual people. Who's tweeting that? Some, so, someone needs to be on Twitter right now. Pretty sure. <laughs> we are. The City Club is. I'm sure the City Club has tweeted that out. Grace Heffernan, what question uh, regarding essential work and the future of essential work would you like to hear the mayoral candidates weigh in on? Okay, uh, so let the Northeast Ohio Worker Center, this spring, um, we were looking down sort of this rollout of the vaccines. We knew that um, the economy was going to be opening back up, and to some extent, um, the, the world was going to be opening back up. And so we drafted a Northeast Ohio Worker Bill of Rights um, that outlines the ways in which workers, specifically Northeast Ohio workers, need relief. Um, and so I would ask a, uh, a candidate, are they willing to sign on and endorse that Bill of Rights? Um, I don't think our Bill of Rights is particularly unique, but what I actually think is unique is Northeast Ohio workers have come together and said, this is what we expect in a job. Um, and so uh, I will not only ask that of the candidates, but if anyone here today would like to sign on and endorse the Northeast Ohio Worker Bill of Rights, we have clipboards over here on this picnic table, um, and we would love to have your signature. Thank you. Mike Shields. I would ask every elected official, what are you doing to center working people in, in the center of an equitable uh, recovery? You know, uh, this recovery has moved much more quickly than, than the one from the Great Recession. It's, it's moving about uh, five times as fast. I think that has a whole lot to do with the fact that we have had unprecedented uh, fiscal stimulus from, from the federal government. Um, unfortunately, in Ohio, I think it's, it's you know, smart federal policy uh, prevailing over uh, some, some serious missteps um, at the state level. Um, but I think that, that uh, having a recovery that includes everybody really needs to mean uh, focusing on, on working people um, and putting them at the center. And that needs to uh, particularly emphasize folks who have been uh, left on the margins uh, a lot of times, uh, people of color, black workers in particular, um, Latinx, immigrant workers. Um, and fundamentally, we need to make sure that uh, essential workers and, and all working people have safe workplaces, have fair pay, and have a voice on the job. Thank you. We have one more question. This will be our last question. All right. A disproportionate number of women have left the workforce during COVID. They also work disproportionately in low-wage jobs. What do we need to do to support working women? Sandra Ellington. Yes. 
because I was once a single working mom. Uh, affordable, affordable daycare, affordable daycare for women. The right to take off if your child is sick. We need those things. Um, when I was a single mom, the struggle was the daycare was the biggest struggle, getting to and from having daycares that are close. So when you're dropping your child out, having longer uh, daycares that are open longer, providing those services for single parents, single mothers, that is one of the, the main, that is one of the main things that really um, stump, was a stumbling block for me. I didn't have enough daycare. I had to sometimes depend on family, and sometimes family was not always there. But they have got to have, and some, and, and some jobs, they do have daycare on the job. Some jobs need to start looking into that. That needs to be a real question, and that needs to be really looked at. Sandra Ellington is on the executive committee of the Service Employees International Union Local Number 1. Grace Heffernan is with the Northeast Ohio Workers Center. And Mike Shields of Policy Matters Ohio, thank you all so much for being a part of this conversation about the future of essential work. We have been here at Public Square for the third in our series. Please join us next week. We'll be talking with India Birdsong. She's the general manager of the Greater Cleveland RTA. Support for the City Club and Public Square comes from Thompson, Hine, and Common Ground. We appreciate your partnership and generous support of our month-long series. Our forum today is also part of our Workforce Development Series, which is sponsored by the Deaconess Foundation and Huntington Bank. You can join them in supporting the City Club's mission by making a contribution online, becoming a member, or texting the word donate to 216-616-CLUB. That's 216-616-2582. A few easy steps later, you too will be supporting conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Finally, before the wind blows my script away, uh, we're back to in-person forums on Friday, this Friday the 23rd at the City Club. We've got a great panel that's going to be talking about the challenges of the last year and the kind of leadership qualities that will be required for our collective success. It is sold out, but you can join us by listening at, on WCPN or watching on cityclub.org. Tickets are still available for Friday, July 30th. We'll be talking with uh, Eric Wobser of the city of Sandusky, Freddie Collier uh, of the city of Cleveland, and Kirsten Holzheimer-Gale, the 14th mayor of Euclid, about waterfront access as a tool for equity. It's part of our series with the Lincoln Land Institute. And uh, please visit us at cityclub.org where you can find out more information about all of this stuff. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you all for being a part of this. Thanks to our members for their support as well. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>